Hello, and welcome to Shakespeare Presents Tales of the Beard, the roundtable discussion podcast where we talk about weird fiction. My name is Chase, and I will be your co-host. Today, Ryan and I talk about the weird fiction classic, The King in Yellow, by R.W. Chambers. This presents a weird first for us for many reasons, not the least of which, uh, this is a collection of short stories. And as we quickly found out, collections of short stories do a lot to resist our usual Shakespeare treatment. Uh, so the format may feel just a bit off from our usual fare. If you want to support us, you can do so at our network Patreon at patreon.com slash ghostlightmedia. You can also find our website with a link to the merch store at shakespearepod.com. And now, on with the show. Let's talk about what we're going to be doing um, yeah, on our very so... special episodes here. And that is talking about all sorts of uncomfortable things on, uh, on Tales of the Beard. And we're doing weird stuff. Um, weird fiction. So we're, 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 we're talking your... Your HP Lovecrafts. We'll probably dip into Poe at some point, although I know for a fact we're going to do Poe at some point for uh, Shakespeare proper as well. Oh yeah, yeah. I'm sure we'll do. I'm sure we'll do some Poe over there. Um, but this is the stuff the outside, you know, like deeper, deeper dives than than Poe. Poe for being the the godfather of American horror, you know, to an extent. Uh, hit the mainstream, you know, people, people read Poe in, mm-hmm. in school. They don't read necessarily Bierce or Lovecraft or Chambers or August Derleth. Um, they don't deal with the, the Cthulhu mythos and things like that. And so we're going to, no, they don't. We're going to dive and, into some is, of that business. We are. And for this inaugural episode, 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 of Tales of the Beard. We're going to be diving into something that I know has been on my to-read list for literal years. Um and I think it's been on your on your list for a little while. Oh yeah, well. for sure. This has been on my watch list forever and I've never sat down and read it um until we decided to do it for this. Same here and uh, that is going to be R.W. Chambers, The King in Yellow. That's right. The King in Yellow. Have you found the yellow sign? Um, and all sorts of, of interesting stuff. And this is the first time we've done a collection yeah. of um, short stories mm-hmm. on Shakespeare. Oh, we should probably introduce ourselves. I'm Ryan oh, Hatfield. Yeah. I'm Chase Greenlee, and I am I, I am not your mostly quiet producer. I'm like full-on co-host this That's time. right. That's... I can't... I can't hide behind my wife and let her do the smart talking for me and then occasionally chime in with an anecdote. I actually have to do the damn thing. No, yeah, this um, is this is just just the two of us, so it's just yeah, us. Um, we can make it if we try. We can. Um, and we are going to, uh, you know, it takes two to make a thing go right. And that's mm. what we're going to do on this. Um, Shakespeare presents Tales of the Beard. Um, but yeah, as you were starting to say, this is the first time we've done a collection of anything for, uh, for either show. Yeah. Um, so this is going to really fuck with the format. Oh yeah. The format's going to be super weird for this because we're doing a collected, uh, book of works. And we also haven't like 
talked about how we wanted to address that. So I think the best way, the way that makes the most sense for me at least, um, is that we do, cause this is 10 short stories across, uh, in this book. Uh, I think what's going to make the most sense is to do kind of like a very high level flyover of everything. Yeah. In the first episode. And then in the second episode, we're going to talk about the things we actually want to talk about. Because this book, I, I guess kind of part of that flyover, uh, we were talking about this earlier today. This book is very disjointed in that there are is exactly one joint and it's broken. Yeah, and that one joint really is only only a through line, really, in the first four stories out of 10, like 40% of the yeah. book actually relates um, to the title, but it was all released yeah, together. Get... Right. Well, there's, so there's the first four, which are 100% like, like you can read these stories and see, oh yes, I see how HP Lovecraft was inspired by this writing. Mm -hmm. And then there's the two in the middle that are kind of like, okay, these are kind of horror. Uh, uh, Demacel is pretty interesting. I like that. I one. actually really There's... enjoyed that that story. Um, but the second you get to the Streets trilogy and Rue Barry, it immediately breaks down. It's like, why is this in this book? So, to which I I brought to you my theory, my completely baseless theory, that uh, this was intended to be. Each of these sets of stories were set to be in their own books i i think there was supposed to be a weird fiction collection and a bit that was about artists in paris yeah well and, and that's the thing gonna... is is chambers lived in paris for a decent amount of time mm -hmm. and he loved he loved the city of paris and so that obviously comes through in oh and all of that in all of in these all of, stories with... um yeah, that are set with... both in um the u.s in New York and also mm -hmm. some in Paris. Um, yep. The first story, the fourth story, mm -hmm. those are in fictional New York uh, in the future. Uh, 25 years ahead or so, 1920s America. Um, yeah. And then the, the mask and court of the dragon, which are part of that first four that are really about, the subject matter, the supernatural horror, um, are in Paris. Mm -hmm. And then, yeah, the, the romantic fiction style that we get into with like what you referred to there is the streets trilogy, um, yep. where we have the street of the four winds, the street of the first shell and the street of our lady of the fields are a lot closer to chambers later writings. As he became okay. a, a romantic author. Um, so Chambers kind of got away from, like, he got, he, he got into writing the supernatural and then he got away from writing the supernatural. Sure. I like his earlier stuff better. Yeah. Yeah. No <laughs> kidding. Um, I do too. Uh, but, uh, um, Rubery and is kind of like a, it has a couple throwbacks that are like towards the tone, at least, of the first story in the book. 
Yes. No, Ruby, like there is, there are elements of like specifically of Ruby that I really like. And right up until the very end, you don't know, and we'll, we'll get to it, but you don't know if it's going to be a romantic or a horror story. Yeah. It and... ends up being a romantic and it's like, it, it feels like a weird flinch, but let's, let's go ahead and start diving in so that we can actually start talking about these in the right yes. order. Um, so we'll start with, um, well, the first, the first story. Yep. Which is the repairer of reputations. Yes. Um, and it is the first one in the book. It is the first one that introduces us to the concept of the play, mm-hmm. the King in Yellow. King and Yellow. Which is the, the name of the collected volume also. Mm-hmm. And um, what's neat about this, and actually something that is reflected all throughout the entire book, is that the um, each chapter each story starts off with an excerpt from the king in yellow yes from the fictional play that appears in all of you know that appears to some degree in most of the stories in here um what is interesting is that even in the romantic ones it still i believe begins with excerpts yep yeah uh from this play for seemingly no reason whatsoever but um i i am not going to attempt the uh the the passage here at the beginning of the repair of reputations because it is in french yeah uh and i'm not going to punish you all for listening to our podcast uh by me trying to fumble through french je parle français un petit peu yeah no i have not i have not spoken a lick of french since like fifth grade maybe sixth grade so you know we're gonna go ahead and just fly over that but we do get Um, we do get um i i don't know if your copy has this or not but mine has uh an excerpt also to the left of the the first page of the repair of reputations that is act one scene two um from the king in yellow along the shore of the cloud waves break the twin suns sink beneath the lake the shadows lengthen in Carcosa. Strange is the night where black stars rise and strange moons circle through the skies, but stranger still is lost Carcosa. Songs that the Hyades shall sing where flap the tatters of the king must die unheard in dim Carcosa. Song of my soul, my voice is dead, die thou unsung as tears unshed shall dry and die in lost Carcosa. So, um, you get that, like, that's right there before you dive into the repair of reputations. Um, what's happening in the repair of reputations at the beginning is around the year 920. 920? Or 1920, sorry. Um, (laughs) and there's a war happening Mm -hmm. on U.S. soil in, like, there's a German invasion of, of New Jersey or something. Yeah, it is it is setting up a absolutely wild future of America. And this is I I am going to put up a pin this time because I want to talk about whether or not this is an idealized or a dystopian United States, Uh, because when I first started reading this, 
I I texted Ryan. It's like, oh, I wonder. I'm I'm sitting down to read it. I wonder how long until it gets weirdly racist. And the answer was less than three pages. Yeah. Yes. Um. But as you continue through the rest of it, the the racism that you get right here, right off the rip, doesn't mm-hmm. really continue through the rest of the stories. No, it really doesn't. Like this is the only. Uh, the only time it re- reveals its head at all, um, it do- also does not really address the fact that there are people of other races writ large throughout the book, but that's just, you know, a- a- that is representation in the late 1800s, yeah. unfortunately. Um, but this is where it is incredibly overt. Um, but we, uh, we join up with our, uh, our protagonist as he is walking down the street and, there's a lot talking about where he's talking about the elevated railroads and all the things in New York and setting up the dim future, the, this future um, New York, the United States Academy of Design. Um, there's a Secretary of Fine Arts cabinet position um, in this fictionalized future. And National Mounted Police. And a suicide chamber. That's kind of the big thing that we're interested in. That's where to. he's going first. That's right. He's going yeah. past where the suicide chamber is set up because there's now been a law in, in New York where you can, I guess, legally, he's on his way home from his doctor's house, I think, and he's going past yeah. because he was in an asylum, as he states repeatedly, this was a, a formality and that he was never crazy or what have you. Um, correct. And during that time, while he was convalescing, in the asylum was when he was introduced to the king in yellow. Mm-hmm. And that, uh, that comes up. He read through the first, uh, the first act of the king in yellow. Um, he was interested in reading it because the French translation, like the French government, like seized translations of it. People were, were not supposed to be reading this book. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it, it is a, and I suppose we, th- this is the best time to talk about the King in Yellow as a, as the piece of work within the fiction itself, because it is consistent across, you know, all of the stories where it's relevant, it is consistent across all of them in its presentation. It is a two act play. Act one that- is mostly set up exposition it sounds like from from everything from all of these yep. is like and then act two things go off the fucking chain yeah act act and... two gets buck wild apparently and causes people to go insane yes and when you start reading it you can't stop and if depending on your mental fortitude and what you are up for and in for it will take you out one way or another. This is a book that drives people to insanity and then death. And they they um, can you can read the first act, but if you if you start the second act, it's all over for you. Absolutely. Um, um so our protagonist has started off having already read it. Um and he makes his way to a home to a business of a family friend um where his daughter if i no his niece is uh interested in his cousin and that is 
the large kind of broad strokes of that. And then he goes upstairs to meet his friend. Yeah, he lives he above was... a guy by the name of Hobart, who is an armorer. Mm-hmm. Uh, his fr- and his friend, who is the repairer of reputations, um, is presented as a madman by everybody outside of that building. Everybody other everybody than... Everybody outside of... Yeah. Everybody other than Mr. Castain, who is our yes. main protagonist, our protagonist here. Mr. Can- Castain is the only one who takes him seriously. Um, but yeah, he passes by the lethal chamber where you can legally go if you've decided that it is your time. You can mm-hmm. go and and get a painless death awaits him who can no longer bear the sorrows of this life. Um, they, you know, that declare that open, and then he sees that uh, Hauberk is in, Constance is Hauberk's daughter, um, and Constance is uh, the daughter that is in her, she's interested in, the cousin. As um, Castain leaves Hauberk, he goes upstairs to Mr. Wilde. Yeah, Mr. Wilde is the repairer of reputations. He's the character that lives above Hauberk's shop. He's deformed. He's missing his ears. Yeah. He's got, like, fake wax ears that he wears. He's got this rabid cat that lives with him. That attacks that he is him? Convin- yeah, that, like, and that's just how they play, and he thinks it's just a grand old time. Um, but he's like, but eventually wh- this thing is gonna kill me. Correct. Um, and Wild um, presents the, the protagonist um, Mr. Costain? Is that how you pronounce it? Hildred Castain? Castain. 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 Um, he's got a cousin uh, named Louis. Ca- or yes, Louis and we'll be getting to Louis. We'll be getting to Louis here in just a bit. Probably Louis, because France. Well, this one's in New York. This one is set right. in the U.S. But this is written by R.W. Chambers, who so, yes, big old is, Francophile. Is, <laughs> yeah, he's a very big Francophile, so it is probably Louis. He probably goes mm-hmm. by Louis. Um, but, um, Wilde presents, uh, a Castain with a book that he has seen before. And, uh, Castain reads the book cover to cover while he's there. And the basic thrust, and we're doing the, the, a, a very large flyover, is that at present, uh, there is a, uh, a genealogical dynasty. A lost kingdom for, in um, the United States. And at present, uh, it is Castain's cousin Louis that is the heir to that throne. Yes, the last king Louis... of the imperial dynasty of America. That's it. And without Louis, uh, well, that would fall to Castain. And Castain is an ardent believer and supporter of the king in yellow, of King Haster. Yes. And if... Uh, anybody else were to obtain that throne it would mean war and death and famine and this is something that louis ca- or that uh, that castain cannot abide by um after he finishes reading uh he he sets up and uh he looks over the reputations that wild is in the process of repairing, repairing. Yeah, which I found uh, which I found really interesting, like the costs associated with repairing each of these reputations and And it is like to to oversimplify this into modern context, it would be as like if there was um somebody you could go to to uncancel yourself. Yeah. Yes. Like if yeah. 
and you can pay absorbent amounts of money, particularly for back then, even projected for back then, yeah. um, to have certain people forget about certain social infractions that you've committed. Um, yeah, it, you know, like the retainer for some of these, like this guy, you know, he's five bucks. This guy, the retainer is 100 bucks, which is right. a lot of money in 1920 or 1895. Right. Um, so just absolutely ludicrous sums, particularly for somebody who's depicted as living just above squalor. Yeah, and as a complete you know, like a complete madman, but he has yeah, like, no. he has a, a like a, a spy network, um, <laughs> like around the city where he's able to <laughs> gather all sorts of information and, and everything like that. So like to use to his advantage in repairing these reputations mm-hmm. and making his funds, but correct, he's never described as anything other than, you know, like living you know, in this tiny little apartment with his feral cat above mm-hmm. this guy's armory. Right. Except by, except, the way he is described is exactly that. A man living in squalor, barely at his means. But everyone who interacts with him directly treats him with the most devout of respect. Yes. And, which is interesting, because as we go on, uh, you know, we question that respect. So at this point, we have no reason to believe anything other than what we have been told is 100% absolutely true. Um, so when Castain goes home, he goes to, uh, he has a timed safe in his house. He goes to the time safe, opens it up, and within is a crown. His crown for when he takes up the mantle of being... When he becomes being... The, uh, the last king of the Imperial Dynasty of America... Yes. Um, and he believes it is a you know beautiful diadem of gold and and uh jewels. Mm-hmm. Um which that is immediately and everything is immediately thrown into question when after some time uh his cousin comes to visit him and he his cousin comes during this one time of the day where uh Castain is able to remove the crown from the time uh, safe. Uh, from the safe. And put it on, and his cousin Louis comes in and asks him why he's wearing that trash on his head. Makes makes fun of his crown, makes fun of him. He doesn't know why his, you know, call why he's calling a cigar box a safe, but sure, I'll go ahead and put this weird trash you were wearing in your safe, whatever. Um, But immediately, that takes down everything we know. Because this, it ceases to become a story about you know, usurping a dynasty and immediately becomes about a dangerous, unreliable narrator. Yeah, incredibly unreliable narrator in Hildred Castain. Um, Louis still obviously believes that he is mentally ill. He's trying to force Louis to abdicate his claim to the throne mm-hmm. and go into exile, never to return again, and that he's not allowed to marry um, his fiance Constance Hauberk who is the and, daughter of the armorer. Right. Um, and Constance, you know, we're to kind of skip towards the end here uh, because there, you know, there is some dithering about in the middle. Um, 
this is, you know, writing from, you know, the late 18th century. So, of course, there is some dithering about in the middle. Oh, yeah, of course. Uh, <laughs> um, it's not the none of this is the punchiest work we have read for the show. <laughs> well, this 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 story is actually an anti story. OK, specifically um, with our unreliable narrator and everything like that. But the way that Chambers wrote this um since then, it's like an early, like a proto version of what's called an anti-story. Okay. It's a type of fiction writing where the, some of the rules, the fun, like what makes up a short story are just broken. Sure. Um, in, you know, goes into like what experimental literature, you know, like he's, he's just trying, um, trying shit out. And one of that is, getting you to doubt everything that is coming from our narrator. Mm -hmm. And like, like ignores suspension of disbelief as a possibility. It just kind of like, here you go. Yeah. It kind of steamrolls you with the information that is presented within the story. Yeah. There's, there's um, no, without there's no editing. Mm -hmm. You're you're not removing unnecessary information. Um, although I suppose that the the bit in the middle does kind of go to show how people react around Hauberk. Not Hauberk. I'm sorry. Hildred. Uh, how well, Hildred. Yeah, Con Ca Mr. Castain. But like once once you once his delusion comes out, then mm -hmm. you have to wonder what in the story is true. Correct. Could the suicide chambers, the lethal chambers, is that, are they actually what Mr. Castain says they are? Um, I hadn't, I'll be honest. I hadn't even thought about the suicide chambers because I had a, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm doing the pins this time. And the, one of the pins I have is Chekhov's chamber mm -hmm. because you would think if you're going to introduce a suicide booth in the first act, I kind of want to see what's going on inside in the third. And we don't get that. We never do. Uh, but so yeah, that so... could completely be a, a figment of Castain's imagination that oh, for sure. they are setting up these lethal suicide chambers. Oh, you're, you're ready to end your life. You can go, you can go here. And, it may be because he sees somebody go inside and nobody ever sees him come out. You know, it's like an entrance to the subway. Right. Because he didn't come out there. He came out, you know, on the other side of the, of New York. Um, mm -hmm. and yeah, and, and, but you know, this story ends kind of at, with a police altercation with the police, taking in castane dragging him off dragging him off and then he dies in an asylum a couple of days later yep um you know constance uh sees him getting constance dragged off constance yeah well constance like barely escapes an assassination attempt well yeah because this is um and we can def we'll go more into detail in this during episode two, uh, because we still do have eight more or nine more stories. Nine more to get stories to talk about. So 
uh, we will do a much deeper dive into what's going on with these and why we're going to be saving so much for that second episode as we get near the end of this one. It's all going to make a lot more sense. Uh, but as we go on through, um, when we come back to it, to this story next time, there is a lot of like high action intensity going on at the very end of this story. It really saves it all right for that final moment. Yes. Um, but yeah, but Castain ends up dying. And you know, that is uh, that is the introduction to this uh, to the King in Yellow, um, which leads into what might be my favorite story in this. Um, the Mask. I think the Mask is really good. Mask is real cool because it sets up. It does. Uh, so the idea is that it immediately introduces us to three characters who are just easily the most relatable that we come across in the uh in the run of the the stories. Yeah. So yeah, we have mm-hmm. So yes, this is the mask. Mhm. Um and it gives us another another section um you sir should unmask. Indeed. Indeed, it's time. We all have laid aside disguise, but you, I wear no mask. No mask? No mask? You know, Casilda and the stranger, and the stranger, you know, we know there are three characters, or three, there's three known characters in the play The King in Yellow. The stranger, Casilda, and, um, Camilla. Mm. And so the stranger is, Probably the titular character, probably the king mm-hmm. in yellow. In his almost certainly, um, and it was kind of like the the mask here is kind of like an allusion to the mask of the Red Death. Mm, yes. So these three characters that we first are introduced to, we have Alec, who is our narrator, uh, Boris, and Genevieve, and they set up a. It is a love triangle that has already resolved itself. Yes, that Boris, Boris and Genevieve are are together. together. They live together. Um, and she's Alec, his muse. Uh, Alec was very taken with Genevieve, and to a point, to some degrees, she was to him as well. And then, but you know, she in the end, she chose Boris and. Alec went to Boris and was like, "Hey, man, good game. I guess you know what that had that. Sometimes it be like that. Though. Sometimes, sometimes it do be like that. Um, um, and they are still the best of friends. But they, we are introduced to, um, specifically to Alec and Boris as Boris is showing Alec, um, this fantastic alchemical substance that he has. Um, the pair of them are sculptors, and." Uh, Boris has found a concoction that will turn living material to stone. And um, it is absolutely fascinating. He's but just done Boris... one of the goldfish. Um, yep. And it looks like a beautifully sculpted goldfish. And when you put something in there, a little bit of light comes off it. Boris is thinking, ah, that's probably the spark of life. That's probably its soul leaving. Alec asks Boris, like, so what are you going to do with this? And he's like, oh, I'm going to burn 
everything about this. I'm going to use this, but I'm going to get rid of everything about this. This would ruin sculpture. Uh, this is incredibly dangerous. I know I shouldn't be messing around with it is the subtext. Like, it's it's super awesome, but at the same time... I know I'm in Moria digging too deep too greedily. However, I'm going to play with the fuck out of this while I've got it. Don't don't get in the tub in the next room, by the way. Yeah, don't... don't <laughs> yeah. Because in the next room... Actually, no, I'm sorry. He doesn't say that. They go into the bathroom that, like, he's working the on finishing. Yeah. Yeah, it is a it is a pink marble bathroom. The imagery in this one is really spot on. But it is a p- pink tiled marble bathroom. And there's, like, and a fountain in it or, like, a... It's like a built-in tub or a top, like a... Yeah, like a, a big, massive, luxurious, you know, French tub. And he... Almost like a Roman bath style... Yes. Um, tub in the in the room. And Boris, you know, just very casually leans over to Alec. Like, oh, by the way, don't get in the tub. I put the chemical in there. I want to put some big stuff in there. The, the juice is in the tub. And Alec is suitably horrified. Alec... Ends up staying there for the rest of the day. Um, a lot of really the rest of these stories, with the exception of one or two, take place around like idyllic artist communes, which maybe that was a thing in Paris back in the eight, late 1800s. Well, it's very bohemian, romanticized. Yeah. These are just like a bunch of wastrels living in beautifully designed mansions that just no one is using. So they're hermit crabbing their way into. It's super bougie. It, not just bougie. It is like, it is bourgeoisie. Yeah. Well, yeah, these are, like, yeah, these is, are the mm-hmm. bourgeoisie. Alex stays there painting for the rest of the day. Genevieve comes in and they have a chat. He ends up um, falling asleep in their parlor and when he wakes up, he scares Genevieve, who I think... Because she didn't realize, because nobody apparently ever goes in that room. Right. And she goes in to play the instrument that's in there. It's not a piano. It was something else. Yeah, it was It was something very weird and specific. She, well, yeah, she she hurt herself. She, she sprained her ankle because she got scared by him uh, waking up. A spinet is what she was playing. So yeah, she uh she sprains her ankle and so she is taken to bed uh by one of her uh uh hand folks there. And she ends up very suddenly and very quickly falling ill. Massive fever, delusion, the whole nine yards. And in this delusionary state, she ends up walking to the bathroom, uh, where Boris is working, and Laying down in the bathtub with all of the chemicals, turning her into a perfect statue of herself. And this is happening while Alec is also out of commission with Alec is sick. There's their friend Jack, um, who really isn't in a whole lot of this. No, he's there for like to be the exposition friend. He's there to be awake when other people have fainted. Yes, that's basically (laughs) that's basically it. Um. So yeah. he eventually ends up relaying because Alec is certain that Genevieve and Boris have visited him while he was sick. Um, and that they're just gonna, they're gonna come now that he is feeling better. And Jack is like, uh, I didn't have the heart to tell you this, buddy. Um, but they did. But 
they are so dead. Thing you got sick and things got like bad. you got sick and shit went south fast. It took five minutes for shit to go south, and then it was there, and it was awful. So yeah, Genevieve, um, she fell in the tub, took a took a took a, took a stone yeah. nap, and then immediately Boris, out of grief, Boris saw that. Boris offs himself. Boris saw that, pulled a fucking pistol out, and shot himself in the heart. Um, he just straight just blasted himself right in the chest. Uh, Alec is gifted the mansion that Boris and Genevieve were living in. Jack is uh, within their, their will, their their place upstate. Uh, you know, well, yeah, that's what I'd say if we were in but New they, York. But this is in France, Ept. Yeah, their their country. So, yeah, villa. some country home. Um, where he's gonna take care of affairs. Immediately before he even goes over there, Alec is like, no, I'm out. Sorry. And then spends five years traveling the Middle East. Yeah, all over the place. Uh, and in, into he, he just the Indian subcontinent and everything else. And then he gets a letter from Jack about mm-hmm. something going down. Um, and he comes home. He, he finally returns to the mansion and begins the process the long process of getting it back into shape. Well, Jack is Jack is selling all of his pictures, he's everything like that. He's but he's got this strange apprehension that comes to Alec and like he's like I have to see you. Do should you should I come to Bombay or are you coming here? And Alec is like, "All right, oh, let's you know, I'm on the next boat, man." Because Alec is coming home. Well, they stayed they stayed in Paris together. Then they went to Ept for a week. They went to Boris's grave. They uh, talk about the fates, um, which was the sculpture that uh, Boris had been working on before he shot himself in the chest. And then he's like, Jack, you need to go on vacation. So Alex sends Jack on, like, Jack on vacation, and he goes back to Paris. And he decides, he's like, I'm going over to the mansion I'm going to go in there, and he starts getting things around. As he's getting everything put back together, um, the wait staff, who apparently is still around, or uh, he has hired back on, uh, starts coming up. It's like, hey, uh, we found this flower. We had no idea where it came from. Uh, we thought there was like a couple of sculptures over there. There was just this random flower. It's like, hey, we found these there was fish this, this, just this flopping fucking, around this outside fucking of the tent. Rabbit. The sculpture of the rabbit's missing, and now we've got a live rabbit hopping around. I got a dog barking behind me. We got a live rabbit Uh, hopping around. (laughs) What the dick? Yeah, the goldfish were just flopping on the floor. At which point, a light bulb goes off in Alex's head. It's like, oh no. Oh no. And he runs into the sculpture room where uh, the body of Genevieve was. You laying know, un- sat under laying the Madonna in, as yeah. marble. Yep. And the story ends with her coming back with her to life. opening her eyes. Yeah. Very cool story. Um, the only, like only a slight mention of the King in yellow at the very beginning, uh, that it, supposedly that is where Boris got the idea was like, while reading, while the, reading King in yellow. the King in yellow. Um, but there is at least reference to it. It has the supernatural feel to it, obviously, with sure. the what's going on. 
Um, yeah, no, totally, like, absolutely 100% fits in with, uh, with what we've got going on here. The next one, we get to what I'm pretty sure is the shortest one of these. And the Court of the Dragon, I think, is the shortest of the first four, at least. It's a pretty breezy read. Uh, opens up with the stanza, Oh, thou who burnest in the heart of those who burn in hell, whose fires thyself shall feed in turn, how long be crying, mercy on them, God? Why? Who art thou to teach and he to learn? I think we can describe this story in three sentences. Guy sees somebody creepy in church. Guy is pursued down a lot of twisting and winding alleys by creepy guy from church. Guy wakes up in church. It may have been a dream. <laughs> like, did I sleep through the sermon? That's that's the story. Yep. That's all of it. There is one passing mention of the king in yellow at some point in there talking about how it drives people mad. Yep. And that he had he had read it. Honestly, it feels like a proto-version of the next story that we're about to go into, which is a beefy one. Yeah, the yellow sign. I, I really like the yellow sign. I think it's a good one. It's not... It's honestly not actually that long. It's only like 17 pages. I mean... Obviously, repair of reputations, I think, is the the meatiest. Mm -hmm. I don't know what it is, and I actually know. I think I do know what it is. As I think, I like the main character in the yellow sign the least, and that is probably a good reason as to why it feels longer. And I actually, I'm not a huge fan of him either, Mister Scott. Yeah, he is one of these. Uh, Similar kind of situation as to our previous protagonist. He's living the artist commune lifestyle. He's just spending all of these, you know, he's an older guy. He's spending all of these days with these lovely young models who, you know, come and pose nude for him. And they do such a great job. And he paints them and he draws them. But he has his favorite model, Tessie, that is uh, there for him constantly. Weeks at a time. She poses. She's just so good at posing and just being there. And it is um, over the course of the story, a romantic relationship ends up like spawning between the two of them. And I do use spawning as, oh, yeah. uh, as the operative verb there because it is super gross. It is very clear. Like the language he is using is... The kind of language that a manipulator and a groomer would use um, to justify their actions. When he's like, oh, I'm a this terrible is, person. I'm, I'm a terrible person, but really, if she's like goes out there, she's just going to get herself hurt. At least with me, I'll be able to take care of her. It's like, no, fuck off, dude. And of course, um, throughout this, Tessie has had this dream that involves mm -hmm. a hearse and... Mr. Scott is in this dream. She has this dream where she's at her open window and she looks out and there's a hearse being driven down the street by this ugly, pasty guy. And he's driving the hearse and Mr. Scott is in the coffin in the back of the hearse. And she's like, but you weren't dead. And like, that's the end of the dream. Mm -hmm. And that is the running. The dream is really the running theme throughout this mm -hmm. 
Um, and the, uh, there's a weird little bit with, uh, some local youth that colorful youths that, uh, seem to do some work for Mr. Scott on the side. And one of them's like, yeah, this guy, cause like Mr. Scott's looked out the window and seen this guy out the window. That's like the, the, the watchman for the church next door. Mm-hmm. And I guess he's a weird maggoty looking fella. Like he's got a gross pasty white face that mm-hmm. Mr. Scott doesn't like. And this guy that, you know, local youth that apparently does some business for Mr. Scott, like punched this guy in the face and pulled off one of his fingers and then ran away. And Mr. Scott's like, oh, yeah, that's that's, that's kind of weird. And then he he goes home, and he has his side of the dream. Yeah, and he then recognizes that the the watchman for the church next door, Tessie, says, oh, the hearse driver looks like that guy there that you don't like across the street. But then he has the dream. But it is from his perspective of being in the hearse and being unable to move but not being dead and seeing Tessie leaning out the window and he tells her that he has had this dream against his better judgment um yeah and then he's he's walking past the churchyard after dinner he went and saw uh saw a play i think or had dinner with somebody from the metropolitan theater um and he's coming back and he passes the churchyard and the guy the watchman fellow mutters something to him and like he doesn't he doesn't realize what the guy mutters to him until much later until he's like gets back in and then like everything comes to him is have you found the yellow sign 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 and he's like what the fuck does this guy mean did he put a curse on me what what the shit is this Uh and then he comes back in and Tessie's all upstairs and you're upstairs and he's like, where's this painting that I started of you? And she's starting to be upset about posing nude because now she's like, well, I'm your, I'm your, you know, your girl or whatever. Don't you have some other way you want to paint me as opposed to just getting me naked? And so he gives her some Um. outfit, some costume that she can wear. And he's gonna all the while bemoaning his mistake. He shouldn't have done this. He's just lost the best model in all of uh, in the entire city, and now he's got to find some new new nude models to start painting. Um, but he gives her, you know, a, a nice dress, and you know, paint. And her then in she that. gives him, um, a box, and inside the box is a black, uh. Like a black onyx, mm-hmm. like pendant or clasp of some sort, and it has a curious symbol in gold, uh, like painted onto it or inlaid into it. Um, you know, he thinks maybe it's you know Arabic or Chinese character, um, but he doesn't know. And she gives it to him. And she, uh, he's like, you shouldn't have bought me something like this. This had to be expensive. And she's like, I didn't buy it. She's like, I found it 
last winter, and the day I found it was the first time I had the dream with the hearse. Mm-hmm. And then he's like, remembering that he had that dream the night before. And he's like, ah, whatever. And he goes to drawing, drawing Tessie again. Some bad shit happens. He hurts his hands or his wrists or something. He can't paint. He's in mm-hmm. pain. Um, he wants, like, he wants to read and then he goes in. And he sees a copy of a book that he swore he would never buy and never read. And he's like, yep, something bad happened to his buddy Castain after he read that book. And he vowed he would never do that again. He would never let that happen. to He's him. like, I'm never I'm never going to fucking read this. He finds this book and then Tessie finds this book and Scott's like, don't read that book. And she's like, I'm going to read that book. And then she runs off. And Scott can't find her. He can't find her anywhere. And then when he does, she's crying. And the book is open. She finished it. To act two. Mm, that's right. It was act two. Well, I think the start of act two, it might be where she like mm-hmm. had gotten to. She she got to that point, And then they finish reading it together. They realize, you know, when they sit down to start talking about the play after they finish reading it together, that the clasp that he has... Is, is the, the yellow, yellow sign, sign that's in the play. It is the sign of Haster the King in Yellow. At which point they hear sounds from downstairs. Somebody has gotten in, and it is the Coming watchman. Coming for the yellow sign. Uh, T- Tessie dies instantly. She sees this guy, dies and she just Yeah, she's just dead. So the watchman attacks Scott to he, get the yellow he sign He takes from the him. clasp off, strikes him, um, and as he falls, Tessie... He hears Tessie's cry and her spirit fled. And like when they when the cops show up, have him like they've been trying to cure him of whatever affliction he has. The doctor's there, and the doctor's packing up his shit, and the priest is sitting, you know, standing by basically to give last rites. He's like, they know Tessie's dead and I am dying. Uh people ran into the house, found him still alive, the other two dead. But the doctor's like, the watchman, the watchman's body, he's like, I have no theory. The man must have been dead for months. And then it ends with, I think I am dying. I wish the priest would. And it cuts off. It's so good. It is, it is very That's real good. good. I know that is, that's a little cliche, but I am, I'm here for that one. Well, you know, in 1895. Oh, no. That must have been horrifying to yeah, anybody. That shit bawled in 1895. <laughs> <laughs> and that takes us into. The Demoiselle of Dis. Yes. Um, which again, this is another one that I think we can do real quickly like this is this one lends itself to anthony and cleopatra oh yeah american american gets lost on american hunter f- in the yeah, lost, french moors yeah lost on french moors gets found by a pretty falconer lady who's um, got some falconer buddies that have taught her falconry they go back to their falconry castle Guy gets real into the anachronistic role play they've got going on there. Yeah, they give him some old doublet and hose. He puts on that. He's cosplaying uh, 1500s. 
falls in uh, love with girl. Uh, he and girl go out back onto the moors. Girl falls in love with him. They get lost for a second. Guy finds girl's tombstone. She died of a broken heart. But uh, snake. There was a snake. viper. The viper attacks him and like bites his leg and he kills it. But then like he wakes up and girl's grave. Yes. Um, and the best part is, so it's a modern, modern setting story. Yep. Um, but then, pray for the soul of the demoiselle Jean Dice, who died in her youth for love of Philip, who is our American, a stranger, A.D. 1573. So she died 320 years beforehand. But upon the... But upon the icy slab lay a woman's glove, still warm and fragrant. Yep. So So there was a weird time slip where... Cycle of samsara kind of bullshit going on. Yeah. Where he ends up, like, back in the 1500s. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. With her. It's, It's a similar... But kind of predates a similar style of story um, from H.G. Wells. H.G. Wells wrote a story called uh, The Door and the Wall that came out 10 years, 11 years later. Mm -hmm. That kind of has a similar, a similar theme. And I think this is like where we're starting to get into the romance of, uh. Ooh, total side note. We should do some H.G. Wells. Sometime. Oh, definitely do some H.G. Wells. I have, no, I have not read any Wells before. Um, and, uh, he plays a not minor role. Hey, we're going to take a quick break here and we're going to do what uh, Chase's comic recommendations right now. Um, it is a, 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 I believe it is an ongoing series called Die, D-I-E. Um, You've told me about it, it and it, I still haven't read it. Yeah, you should, because uh, I'm not sure if you've got Hoopla in your new town, uh, which is the, like, a uh, library digital platform. Is that the library platform. thing? I'll actually have to look yeah. at that. Uh, because uh, that is where I've read all of it. If you've got access to Hoopla, there's a very good chance that you have access to this uh to this graphic novel series there are three trades out right now i'm not sure especially with pandemic stuff going on i don't know what happened or what's going on with continuing publication yeah uh but it's very good if you like like uh D fantasy um and weird ways that real life people can intersect with that kind of shit like it is 100 percent up your alley also the art is gorgeous but that is going to take us to the weird kind of joints of this book prophet's paradise I, I, it's they're just, not it's a, poems it's weird prose poems like they're themed off of the king in yellow and these are the last mentions of the king in yellow at yes because ostensibly like all of these poemlets these prose each paragraph or collection of paragraph is named after something that could ostensibly exist within the King in Yellow. We've got the studio, the phantom, the sacrifice, destiny, the throng, the jester, the green room, and the love test. And it's like three pages long, and then that's it. It is 
very atmospheric, but not a whole lot of like lore or mythos information. Not a ton of substance. It's, yeah, not mm-hmm. a ton of substance. And now we get to the part of the book that when I got to it, I had to like read, like go back through again because I was like, I felt like I was missing something because it feel there. It is just very, I don't want to say bereft of incident, but the incident is very different from anything else. Cause like we talked about at the top, you can totally read the first half of yeah. this. The Demoiselle of Dis, uh, in my in my copy at least, ends on page eighty five. Rubri, a rubere, or whatever, however you pronounce that, the last story in the collection ends on one seventy nine. So even if you include six, the Prophet's Paradise, that ends on eighty nine. You're looking at ninety pages, like you're right there in the ballpark, halfway through when you get through the first six items on the agenda. The last four take up the exact same amount of space as the first six do. And there's just... They're just not as interesting, at least for me, especially when you're going into it thing. is like, ah, cool, I'm gonna... I'm gonna read the mythos that inspired Lovecraft. I guess that's kind of burying the lead. I think we might have mentioned it a very little bit at the very beginning, but the King in Yellow was a huge inspiration for H.P. Lovecraft. Well, he wrote he wrote things that involved Haster, mm-hmm. and the play The King in Yellow kind of becomes this fictional part of of basically of the Cthulhu mythos. Sure, and Haster, and we can we'll get to it next episode. But Haster also like has his own. Haster predates Chambers. Oh, okay, I didn't know that. Yeah, and uh, we'll talk about this in part two. Go ahead and put a pin in. In Haster, just, just Haster. in general, yeah, for sure. But yeah, so uh, I think we'll be able to kind of fly through these last couple pretty quickly because I don't think there's an abundance of affection for uh, any of the stories going on, except for maybe a little bit of Rubery. Which I like, I like the Street of the Four Winds because it's short. Yes, Street of Four and Winds, and it had, to, it had mm-hmm. some real supernatural potential for sure because this cat just turns up i thought we were getting another supernatural story with this i you know with the cat that just pops in yep um and this guy severn who has a habit of talking to animals um because he lives by himself and like he he forms this relationship with this cat he feeds the cat he's taking care of it and then he like checks the the collar, which is some lacy garter clasped around this this cat's neck, and it says Sylvia Elvin mm-hmm. on it. So, uh, but like this, he has gone out when he went out looking for more food for the cat. He ran into all these people that live in the building or in the neighborhood, and they were all telling him about this cat lady. Um, the woman who owns the cat and, and everything like that. And then he sees, um, I knew a Sylvia. So Sylvia is a woman's name and Elvin is the name of a town. Um, and he's like, I know the town of Elvin. I knew a Sylvia there. There's no way my Sylvia is your Sylvia. Um, 
But let me take you back to this lady who is apparently your owner. And... And then... Mm-hmm. He does. And she's fucking dead. And she's just laying in bed, dead. Then he kisses her on the mouth, and that's weird. He said, well, because yeah, it was his Sylvia. He's like, Sylvia, it is I. It is I. And then he kisses her. And, like, takes the cat home. And that's the end of the story. Yeah. That's the end of the Street of the Four Winds. Yeah, that's that's the story. Like, there's really great setup. Mm-hmm. I was into it. But we're talking, like, this is like four pages. Five. Five pages, right? One, two, three, four, five, five and a half, maybe six pages mm-hmm. tops. Yeah. Just not not a whole lot going on there. Um, no, yeah. It, and again, I just, no magic, I wish... no, no madness, just sad. Just this cat, this this cat that used to live a good life is now like starving. Nobody likes this cat's owner. Mm-hmm. Oh, coincidence. The cat's owner is named Sylvia and might be tied to this town of Elvin that I was once in that I knew somebody named Sylvia in. Holy shit, I've been living in the same building as this woman I had relations with back however long ago and it's your it's her cat that somehow found me. Like there's like the ability for like it to be something, yep. and it's not. And that is going to take us to the Street of the First Shell. Which, which it's a weird war story. I kept waiting and waiting and waiting for something. It's. It, I think this is might be out. I think this might be the longest story mm-hmm. or close to the longest story. Um, yeah. Repair of Reputations might still be longer. I don't think it is. Cause I'm, I, I, cause it's... this is a, this is a good almost 30 pages, but I think in my copy, Repair of Reputations was a little over 30. In in my copy, repairer is forty pages because I, I I've got a, I've got thirty one for repairer of reputations. I've got I've got a I've got a solid fifty here for or no, maybe just under forty eight. Forty eight. I've got for for from the first page ninety six to page one twenty five. So I got like in my copy twenty nine pages for Street of the First Shell and thirty and a half for uh, Repairer of Reputations, so they're about the same length, mm-hmm. and Repairer of Reputations, even for all that it is an anti-story, and written like, ignoring the rules of writing a story just sign- is a lot more interesting, so it flows much. a lot better. Yeah, because I, I kept waiting for something to happen with Jack, for Jack Trent in this to like this feels like a proto Tom Clancy novel. Yeah. It this yeah. Seriously, like one Jack Trent is 100% a Tom, a Tom Clancy name. Oh yeah, this guy like, is definitely a Tom Clancy guy. And he's living in France. 
He's with these artists. And he's, during... He's sussed out this German-American spy. And it's during, like, an actual, like... It's during the siege of the of Paris in 1870. So you've got, like, some actual fucking stakes going on here. Like, yeah. bomb... Like, this guy is going out for an evening... And, and there's shelling. Yeah, they're they're literally bombing the city, and his girlfriend's like, "Hey, maybe don't." And he's like, "Yeah, but maybe do." And he bounces. Yeah, like you know, I got to baby. You know, I can't stay home. Um, and I can't stay home from this. Look, I'll die out there. I'll die here. It's fine. They're they're not shelling anywhere near Look, here. They're not even but like the shells. The artillery is not even close yeah. to here. And like he uncovers, you know, like you said, the German American spy, and that's neat. But there's almost no incident to it. And then he gets home and the shell goes off like on history. And then he goes nuts. That's why it's called like history he, of the first shell. It's because history before the first shell went off. But he goes like he goes nuts and like goes out, finds some soldier who doesn't want to go, get puts on his uniform, gets a fucking rifle with a bayonet on it and decides to just like instead of deserting from the army he does the opposite like he sneaks into the army and like goes out to like fight everybody's dying all around him it is a it's how you can tell this is a story about france written from an american perspective yeah but yeah that is he's like going out and trying to get himself killed or something. And then he, he goes back and like a girl scrolls the street. Here fell the first shell. And like, that's it. He goes home. Yeah. And like, he goes upstairs, finds his girlfriend who, and like, there's a weird subplot where the German, spy german american spy once raped his girlfriend or something or they like she had a relationship manipulative abusive relationship with hartman before and they had a kid but hartman has the kid and somehow jack trent finds this out and gets his dude like hey don't kill the spy until we get this baby from the spy's house and give it to my girlfriend. Or no, it's his wife. Sylvie's his wife. Now he's married to her. But until we get my wife's baby from her abusive relationship with this spy, then you can't shoot him. Like, there's a lot of a possibility of interesting shit happening. And he takes advantage of none of it. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Speaking of very boring stories, uh, the 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 final episode in the Street Trilogy, the, the Streets Trilogy, the Street of Man, Our Lady I, I, of the Fields. I snoozed my way through this one. Yeah, no, it's it's weird and kind of xenophobic. It's literally about two dudes trying to find an apartment, and they don't like Jesuits. Yeah. Not a fan. Oh man, there's a Jesuit convent on the corner. Can't you better not hang out with the fucking Jesuits. Yeah, the um we are introduced to Foxhall Clifford, who I believe it shows up in Rubery as well. 
Foxhall Clifford is in Rubery. Yes. And that's it. You like that he is he's the connection between the last two stories. Yes. And which seriously, that's all that happens. We're moving on to Rubery. Because Rubery is also like almost bereft of incident, but things almost happen in a slightly more interesting way. By the way, Foxhall Clifford is a baller name. Yeah, it's real good. Foxhall Clifford. Look, I, I want to read about Jack Cl- about Jack Trent and his man in the chair, Foxhall Clifford. Yeah, Foxhall Clifford is like he's the like he's the roadie to Jack Trent's Tony Stark. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Is he Something. the roadie or is he the happy? Ooh. I don't know. He's too cool. Well, I don't know. Happy's pretty cool. Happy Happy um, gets there. Maybe maybe he's the Bucky Barnes. We do not have to, enough time for me to go to on Steve my Bucky Rogers. rant. Um Falcon I have Winter- not seen I've not seen any of Falcon and Winter Soldier no, yet. Look, here's the thing. Fal- Falcon Winter Soldier is the best thing that like Bucky has done. Like I actually empathize with Bucky in in Falcon Winter Soldier. I will go on a truncated version of the Bucky rant. I don't like Bucky. I never feel bad for Bucky. And in order for Bucky as a character to work, I feel like you gotta feel bad for him. I just am always a little mad at Bucky. Um, but that is. Someday we will have an excuse to talk. I was saying, I'm, I'm interested in, I'm interested in this, in this, uh, in my hot, in my hot Bucky takes. <laughs> yes, I am. Okay. Actually. We'll wait until after I've seen Falcon and Winter Soldier. For sure. Hannah and I finally, we finally started watching WandaVision. Ah, WandaVision's so good. We enjoyed the first two episodes last night on our, on our date night. Nice. But yeah, so I grilled us a couple thick sirloins and, uh, we sat outside and had a candlelit, di- candlelit dinner. Um, we drank a Pinot Grigio called Sheep Thrills. Ooh. And then we uh, sat down and watched the first couple of episodes of WandaVision. And I was like, ooh, we could probably watch a third one or we could lay down. Mm. And then I promptly fell asleep. Well, yeah. You had your Sheep Thrills. You had your WandaVision. What else do you need? Yeah. The kid was I away. Was- I was I was sated by meat and cheap wine mm. and entertaining television, and I fell asleep. Hell yeah! But yes, sorry for that brief interlude into the the dating life of me and my wife. How rarely do we ever? Um, thank you for postponing recording by a day so I could have my my child free night. It it, it allowed me to give Rubery the attention it needed. Um, yeah, and Rubery is actually. Of the back half, mm-hmm. the story is actually pretty good. Um, we do have Foxhall Clifford. Mm-hmm. Um, re- he reappears in this. Yep. Uh, along with a, a cadre of more artsy types living in their bougie <laughs> artist communes in the Latin Quarter of Paris. Um, yes. And, um, they, which is like a rough neighborhood, but it's like the rough artist neighborhood. Right. And so you have, uh, a, a newcomer to the neighborhood, uh, Selby. Is that it? Yes. yes Selby. Uh, Selby, he, he's he, like, he, gets he like points like out, he gets, five... Foxhall Clifford gets pointed out to him, like, right away, like, hey, 
that's Fox Hall Clifford. Yeah, and the the well the yeah, it it is Selby. I was confused because this guy gets like five nicknames in the first like two pages. Yeah, the kid, kid Selby, the prodigious infant, Kidby, and Kidney. then kidney tidbits, and then tidbits, and then back to kid, kid. Um, yeah, but the idea Which... is that um, all of, like this artist commune is like all dudes. And they're well, and it's some guy named Julian's house, and it's like if it's like the first time, it's like twelve years ago or whatever. You show up at Hellfire mm-hmm. for the first time, and somebody's like, "Hey, that's Tyler Ward." Sure, and that's Fox Hall Clifford. Like that's like <laughs> that's like this Selby guy getting introduced to Fox Hall Clifford, or like pointed out, "Hey, that's Fox Hall Clifford." And everybody um, there is, as he's working one day, a woman walks by and he is immediately captivated by her. Just instantly. And he asks around, like, who is this woman? And the only answer he can get from anybody, that's Rubery. Rubery, nobody knows her actual name. They just call her after the street she lives on because no one's had the fucking nards to go and talk to nobody her. nobody has the stones to go talk to this beautiful woman um the first time somebody does sack up and talk to her they buy her a a florist worth of flowers and immediately oh yeah they go hog wild and imme- like they get, send some to her and then send some to their hotel ostensibly for him to deliver in person and then he sits down on the bed and the guy's like, I don't know what I fucking did, man. I, something just came over me. I just had to buy her all those flowers. Hey, bro, what are you going to do with all the flowers? I don't know what I'm going to fucking do with all the flowers, bro. Um, These stories become infinitely better if you imagine all of these guys as dude bros and they say bro at the end of everything. Yeah, and that's true. And it's it, That could be it. It is re- like, this is the attitude that they had. Like, this is... Like, kind of a modern Greek fraternity style, but in Paris in the late 1800s. Like, it, it is definitely that vibe we're getting. Um, is it- The one guy calls, the one guy who does not have great French, um, mm-hmm. Rowden calls a Rueberry. Yes. Which is very good and very honest. Um, and then, um, uh, Fox Hall Clifford uh, is so taken with her that the first time that he sacks up t- uh, to talk to her, he fucking proposes. And she says, I'm mm-hmm. very flattered, but no. And then he and Selby go on a fucking bender. They get fucking stupid wasted and wander around Paris. Selby convinces Fox Hall that Selby will take Fox Hall home and then Selby will walk home alone. Um, Selby gets Foxhall home and then gets lost, ends up at the Arc de Triomphe and starts yelling at it because it's too big. The Arc de Triomphe is too fucking big. Which. And Selby is pissed about it. Uh, which did cause me to laugh out loud because that is the most honest drunk thing I have ever read in a piece of fiction. Oh, yeah. Like, of course, like, yeah, I could see me, myself, getting my dander up at a monument for being too big. I'm so drunk, and I'm gonna, 
I'm I am drunk and I'm gonna yell at the fucking Washington Monument. I am certain I've yelled at the moon at one point. Like I won't yell at anything, given enough liquor. But I am I'm gonna get drunk and yell at Link at the Lincoln Memorial. But this guy. But that's basically it. Yeah, no, that, that, that's what happens. He gets drunk and yells at the Arc de Triomphe. And then he finds himself at Rubery's house at the corner of Rubery, and he without thinking about it, scales the balcony to her window. Yeah, he goes He goes all fucking Romeo and Juliet. He Spider-Man's up the side and is sitting there on the edge and is just, you know, like, gets into her room and she's there and they just kind of look at each other. And everything in, the, everything in the room is white. Except for there is a a rose bush in the corner that his buddy bought for her the other day when he bought out the florist and he's just looking at her and she's just looking at him and he goes over and uh she he he goes to the door she goes to the rose bush picks a rose that and, like touches it to her face and then gives it to him and then he leaves and then, and then she unlocks the door and he just bounces and he just he just walks out the door. Like this is some and kind of like some kind of fucking panty raid gone sideways where instead of it being a sex crime, it's just awkward for everybody. Yeah, he just he gets in there. They just kind of stare at each other for a while. She gives him a flower. And then and he's like, the peace. I'm out. Cool. This was enough. And like like his brain can't process what has happened, and that, like and the fact that everything in the room was white creeped yeah. me out. Legitimately, like I read that as like, oh, oh, this is the eighteen hundreds. That's really hard to do. Why yeah. is that? And then it's never addressed, and he just leaves. Well, like, there, Chambers, like I said, there's the there's some element there's some element of this story that kind of harkens back to like the feel of like repairer of reparation. Oh, absolutely. It is. It is uncanny. Reading this gives me the same feeling as watching, um, the, uh, the, uh, the polar express movie. Like, I don't like it. I'm vaguely uncomfortable. It's too close. Uncanny Valley. Exactly. Um, because when Lovecraft and weird fiction in general does it right, a lot of it feels like it's coming out of a literary version of the Uncanny Valley, where it is just close enough to reality to be unsettling and uncomfortable. Well, the best, the best stuff, the best preternatural horror, supernatural horror Uh is the stuff that lets your brain go wild with it. Absolutely. The littlest description possible of whatever the characters are seeing oh, for allows sure. the reader in the deep, you know, primeval recesses of our brains, you know, go back to our, you know, uh, oh, no. you know, the It engages that kind of animal aspect of it. But yeah. the the thing about weird fiction is it can't all be that because if it, if it's all that, then you have like that is a, 
that is how weird fiction articulates its climax really well. Um, yes. But for the rest of it, you either have to be, it either has to be played so straight you don't realize it's horror, or it has to be played just weird enough that something feels off and you get unsettled. And Ruben yes, Reed does that very yeah. well of just unsettling because there is this woman that everyone is captivated by. And everyone's following her around. They can't make fucking sense of anything when she's near. And they can't fucking talk to her even. And maybe she's supernatural. Maybe they're just idiots and they don't know how to, maybe know how to handle Maybelline. themselves around a woman. And really six of one, half dozen of the other. This, you know, I was about to I say this is the 1800s, it... but no, like I can, I can absolutely see a bunch of like frat broy douchebags. Just I have a hard time believing that Fox Hall Clifford doesn't know how to talk to a woman. <sighs> Maybe his name is Fox Hall I, Clifford. I, look, I get that, I get that, but we also are not given a sense for when this takes place. Fox Hall Clifford isn't always Fox Hall Clifford. That's true. This could be like proto Fox Hall. This Clifford. is his origin story. Yeah, maybe that's it. Maybe this is what causes Fox Hall Clifford to become Fox Hall, Fox Hall Clifford. Clifford. Yeah, but um, that. Uh, uh, do you have that's, any other notes on on this one? That's all ten. There's a lot of stuff that is interesting about these. Yeah. Um, I you know apologize to our listeners for somewhat disjointed um structure. Oh, for sure, for sure. This is for this because it it's hard to when you're used to following a linear piece of work like a play or even like Beowulf mm-hmm. that we have done or you know like uh uh Dickens Christmas Carol. Yes. They're linear pieces of work. Singular this linear is, pieces of work. This is ten disparate, occasionally connected mm-hmm. pieces in one collected volume. Um, and it's it's hard to... We don't want to give away too much of our second, uh, second, second episode. Ep- so yeah, I think going forward, what we will probably do is just pick a short story or two short stories. Or a couple, or yeah, maybe, maybe, uh, maybe a, a, a grouping of short stories as opposed to a book that has ten. Yeah, instead of a full ten. Cause I feel like, you know, not, not, not to, not, not to get too much into how the sausage gets made, but you know, a lot of, you know, I mean, like you said, this just really, bucks how we tend to do things and yeah uh, real talk this is just us doing a proto version of the of the sonnets episode whenever that ends up happening yeah because eventually we'll do the sonnets episode and there's a hundred and yeah and we will some of them we now know what definitely doesn't work yeah Um, and so there may be multiple sonnets episodes the sonnets aren't super long so maybe we'll do a few we will but that is something that we will figure out when the time comes. Um, yeah. But as it is... I but th- we know what doesn't work, and that is trying to buck through 180 pages, which is, I mean, it's short. It's a short read. Yeah. If this was not... If this was not convoluted, mm-hmm. um, 
you could rock through this. Oh yeah. The problem is, is after Demoiselle, um, Demoiselle, you Dan. get bogged down. Yeah. It, it, it here. Here's the thing. And it's really actually, it's not. It's. I, you get bogged down in the street of the first shell, and you get bogged down. I kept having to flip back and forth in Street of the First Shell. Like, did I miss something? That's how I felt um, during all of the street ones. Street of Our Lady of the Fields, Street of the First Shell. Like I said, Street of the Four Winds, because it's only like six pages, and it's just him and the cat, and it's just a little weird, like still kind of had that feel um, of the the earlier... The earlier parts. Yeah. But definitely when I got into um the later the other two street, you know, Street of the First Shell and Street of the Lady whatever with the Jesuit convent. Mm-hmm. Those yeah. just they bog. They bog down. Um yeah, no. Like ideal reading, you can cut out the three streets, and yeah, you could. You will, and and you will have a honestly really good reading experience. Yeah, if you like, wanna, you, you could know, even keep Rubery in there. Oh, um, definitely. No, keep Rubery. Like, yeah, the, and you don't. I don't think you atmosphere need atmosphere in that is real good. I don't think you need um, the Prophet's Paradise. No. You could probably, you could probably skip that. You could probably go straight from Demoiselle of Dis to. Uh, Rubery, make it six, boom. And I think you're going to get the same kind of feel throughout. And that's going to make Rubery, actually, if you cut down like that, that's going to make Rubery even, it's going to hit different because yeah. that's the only one that is, if you go with those six, that's the only one with no supernatural, like out there supernatural. And it's really going to make you, your brain is going to make it that right um but yeah i think that is a good place for us to leave it this episode yeah I, um, yeah yeah for sure i think that's a good stopping point for the inaugural episode of shakespeare presents tales of the beard mm-hmm. i'm ryan Hatfield. i'm chase greenley say good night john boy say good night howard phillips say good night foxhall clifford oh say good night foxhall Oh, there it is. <laughs> this has been a Ghostlight Media Production.